Hello, and welcome back to The Scriptures Are Real. I'm your host, or co-host anyway, Lamar, and I have with me Carrie Mulestein. And we also have a special guest here today, and I could not be happier about this. This was my special request um, to have this gentleman with us. This is Dr. Daniel Peterson. You've probably read some of his books, uh, any of you that have been following um, anything in Deseret Book. He's probably there on some shelf somewhere. And uh, I've wanted to talk to him for a long time. I got his um, address here called Understanding Islam back in 2002 when it first came out. I had friends that were working at Deseret Book, and they lent that to me. And at the time, I was doing a lot of driving between cities for work. And I listened to that, and I was like, man, if people could just get a hold of Dr. Peterson's book or this, this audio program, they would understand so much more about Islam and why we were having so many problems. Remember, 2002, this is just after 2001, which was the, the attacks in 9-11 in September. And so this was very new. And I was like, I, I wish that he would go and make keep the LDS version, which is great. I wished also that he would have taken another one uh, at, and take out LDS references so that the, the Congress could understand it. And I wanted to send it to every member of Congress just so that they could get an idea of what's going on. So anyway... If I'm not being too effusive here and, uh, and gushing, um, this has been my request. I, when I was, Carrie and I were talking about different uh, topics to go over, uh, I said, do you know uh, Daniel Peterson? He goes, yeah, I know him pretty well, actually. And I said, can we get him to talk about? So anyway, um, so today we're going to talk about where Islam comes from. And this kind of follows along with the Come Follow Me, and it falls into Ishmael. So Islam comes from Ishmael. And... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that, and so I've done a lot of talking now. Or let's let's let uh, let's let Dan do some talking here. Dan, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Real I, excited to have you. Maybe be, even before we let him say stuff, I'll I'll just uh, plug some of the other things that uh, uh, he does. So uh, you, you're recently retired, right, from BYU? Yeah, July first of 2021. Yeah, so we miss him here, but uh, he, he's writes regular columns for the Deseret News. Uh, blogs and started the interpreter foundation which if you've not checked that out you should sometime fantastic articles blogs all sorts of things one of the the best resources for a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints that's uh, outside of what the church produces is a fantastic one so interpreter.org is where you can go for that and so uh, i don't know of many people who have been more prolific i mean he was one of the original uh, founders in, uh, of Farms, the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. Uh, I don't know of someone who has produced more good stuff for members of the church uh, than than Dr. Peterson. So I'll also give my welcome. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. And if I can add a little commercial to that, one of the things Interpreter did this past year was to do a film called Witnesses about yeah. the, uh, the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. And I'm pretty excited because next month in, in well, no, it's not next month. It's in March. Uh, we're going to be premiering a docudrama that extends that coverage from the three witnesses to the eight and the informal witnesses and includes uh, you know, interviews with scholars and so on and so forth. So I'm pretty excited about that. That awesome. is exciting. Great. Yeah. And I love that movie, by the way. Uh, uh, anyone who's kind of followed me will see that I was pumping it on social media and so on. It's a great movie. So thanks. Thanks. Fantastic. Well, well, thanks so much for joining us. Go ahead. Yeah. 
Well, it's, it's good to be here, and it's a fun topic to talk about because Ishmael tends to get forgotten. Yeah. Right. Uh, we think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but there's another kid in there. <laughs> he's actually Abraham's firstborn son, though he's not born to Sarah. Uh, he's not the the one through whom the the birthright comes and the the blessings, but he's he is given blessings. And uh, if you read the uh, the Old Testament carefully, you notice that that it's promised that a great nation will spring from him as well as from Isaac. Uh, and Abraham, when when there's strife in his family between Sarah and, and Hagar, uh, Abraham is told, "Don't worry, don't worry. I mean, the, your name, your blessing will continue through through uh, Isaac, but Ishmael also is going to do all right." And uh, and so he is widely considered to be the uh, the founder of the Arab nation, uh, if you want to call it that, who are sometimes called in medieval sources Hagarines or Hagarites or after Hagar, the mother. Um, and in fact, her name means flight. You know, she's driven out eventually by 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 Sarah. It's not one of the more pleasant family scenes in the in the Hebrew Bible or in the scriptures, but she's driven out with her boy. And uh, is that in Arabic then that uh, it means flight or? Yes, uh, her her name um, means flight in the Hebrew, but also in Arabic, it's related to the word hijra, which is which is used for the the flight. Um, of Muhammad from Mecca to Medina. All right. Even oh. today when they, they use our calendar, but they also use what they call the Hijri calendar. Right. They would say H-A-J-R, but you can see it's related to Hagar. And in yeah. Egyptian Arabic, it would be H-G-R. Yeah, oh, I should have made that connection because as yeah. soon as you say it, I can recognize that connection. But that's that's fantastic. So Yeah, so, so you know, what happens to her is almost already in her name, in a sense. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so they're driven out and, and, uh, this becomes really a foundational story for not just Jews and Christians, but for Muslims as well. Um, it was well known in Arabia, apparently. I mean, we don't have pre-Islamic poetry that goes back very far, but we do have some, and some of it already knows the story of Abraham and Ishmael and knows that the Arabs are descendants of Ishmael. I mean, that story was around among Arabs even before the rise of Islam. And they had their own genealogies, taking them back to Ibrahim, as they call him in Arabic, right. Abraham, our Abraham. And, uh, and in fact, when Muslims do the pilgrimage today, they reenact part of the story of, of uh, Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, there's a period where they run back and forth between two hills. This reenacts uh, Hagar's search for water, sort of frantic search for water for the baby Ishmael when she's afraid that he's going to die. Uh, and then you may remember that a, a spring bubbles up and provides water. The voice of the angel says, don't worry, you know, he's not going to die. He's going to be the father of a great nation. And, yeah, and she names appears. the spring, God has seen me, right? Or, or God yes. sees me, the God that sees me. Yeah, that's right. Now, the Arabs take it a little differently. They transfer the story from where the Bible puts it, which is around Beersheba in the south of Israel, right on the edge of the Negev Desert. And they put it in Arabia. Mm -hmm. uh, Arabic lore connects uh, Hagar and, and Abraham, too, and Ishmael with the Kaaba, the shrine that you see in Mecca, the most sacred place in the Islamic world. It, many of you have probably seen that image of that big black cubic building in the center of Mecca towards which everyone prays. Um, and uh, Abraham is supposed to, well, Adam is supposed to have founded it, but Abraham is supposed to have restored it. 
in connection with his son Ishmael, who was there. And the spring that came up is the well of Zamzam, which which supplies the water for the city of Mecca uh, in Islamic lore. But they do know the story. They just put it in a slightly different place. Right. And that, that's uh, a fantastic context when you think about our perspective that God established a covenant with Abraham, but it's renewed with with, uh, I mean, sorry, with Adam, he establishes the covenant with Adam, but it's renewed with Abraham. And, and as you mentioned, I, I mean, God's clear, he is establishing a covenant with, uh, with Ishmael and it's, it's almost the same. There are a couple differences, but it's not far different from what he's promising no. Isaac. No, it isn't. And we tend to forget, uh, Ishmael. And, you know, so I sometimes try to remind people of Abraham's other children. Yeah. You know, he, he didn't just have the one family. He has a big other family with 12 princes, Hmm. You know, as it says in the King James Bible, like the 12 tribes of Israel. So, um, you know, there's a whole other story there. And, uh, and Arabic lore preserves a lot of that, you know, probably sometimes in distorted ways. But, but to a large degree, they've, they've kept it and they remember it and they see themselves as children of Abraham. And they refer, just as the Bible does, to Abraham as the friend of God. Yeah. Um, Khalil, so, right? Is that the yeah, Arabic word Khalil? Khalil. So, so you go to Hebron where Abraham is buried traditionally, and it's often known as El Khalil, just right. the friend. In other words, the place of the friend of God. Yeah. Or you Abraham could go to the big Abraham. bazaar in Cairo. It's called Khan Al Khalili, right? The bazaar right. of the friend, which it means yeah. Abraham's bazaar. Yeah, it comes from the same, you know, that is the name. You you don't have to call him Abraham in Arabic, just say El Khalil, and they know who you're talking about. Yeah. Unless it's a particular modern guy named Khalil, you know, you might have a friend named yeah. Khalil. But, but Al-Khalil in the religious sense is Abraham. He is God's friend. So he's really, really important um, in Islamic thinking. And um, he's, he's considered a Muslim, small m. Um, and um, uh, what does Muslim mean? Muslim means a submitter, one who submits. And Islam means submission, submission to the will of God. Uh, and, and the story they tell to illustrate Abraham's great willingness to submit to the will of God is the story of his near sacrifice of his son. That even that, even though he'd yearned for the son for decades, uh, when he finally got him and he was told, you have to go sacrifice him, he was willing to do it. Not happy about it. You know, some, some traditions make the son... Isaac, usually in the Jewish and Christian tradition, uh, in his teens or something. I've sometimes wondered how big a sacrifice that was. Some of you <laughs> when teenagers, you might think, really? <laughs> really? I get to I get to do it, man. <laughs> I've been tempted so many times, but but uh uh you know, but he's uh, he's regarded as um as a, as a great figure. And Abraham is seen as submitting to God because he doesn't want to do this. It goes against everything. You know, we know that he escaped an area where they did human sacrifice. He thought he was getting away from that. And then this son is so important to him and he's asked to do it. And he's willing to do it. And for that, because he exercises faith, that uh, he trusts God, even though he doesn't get it. Um, then he's rewarded as being the father of the faithful and the friend of God. And, and by the way, let me say something else about that. Um, a lot of people who know anything about Islam and about Arab views on this will say, well, um, 
But the Arabs, the Muslims, believe that it was Ishmael, not Isaac, who was nearly sacrificed by Abraham. Right. And that's probably true today. Um, I think it's a matter of ethnic pride, you know, especially because of the Arab-Israeli conflict. It wasn't their guy. It was our guy. You know, he's the one that God chose. Um, but actually, the Quran never names the son that is about to be sacrificed by Abraham. It, nearly, it merely says that he nearly sacrificed Ibnahu, his son. Oh, yeah. and, um, and, and then I, I mentioned this once in a class many years ago when I was first teaching at BYU. Uh, and I had a Palestinian, a couple of Palestinian students sitting on the front row. I think that they took the class. They thought they'd get an easy A. When they got their first D on a, on a test, I think they learned their mistake. But, <laughs> but, you know, just growing up there doesn't necessarily fill you with knowledge. Um, and, but one of them challenged me. He said, That's not true. The Quran does name the son. And I said, OK, you find me the passage. Well, he came back and admitted there isn't any. It yeah. never names him. And so I did a spot check once on the standard commentaries, the classical commentaries. And I can say up through, oh, I don't know, 925, 930 AD, um, opinions were almost precisely divided among Muslim commentators oh, as wow. to whether it was Ishmael or Isaac. Now, I say today, it's everybody in the Arab world would say, no, Ishmael. But there's no basis for that in the text. So, Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. I've often wondered, I wanted to ask somebody who would know the answer. How do the Muslims see this story of, of, the, of the sacrifice? I mean, they see it, it as a test, a test of Abraham. The test so they, they do recognize this was a thing that happened. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was a test of Abraham. Uh, will you obey God even when he asks you to do something that you loathe? And the answer was yes, that he would. Now, there are some explanations, and these run across Jewish, Christian, and uh, uh, Muslim sources. Some say, well, part of the reason he was able to do it in faith was he assumed that if he had to sacrifice his son, God would restore his son to him. I mean, it, when in, in Genesis, when Abraham leaves the servants and takes the boy with him, he says, we'll be back, you know, basically he says, we'll return to you in a few days. And that's either a lie because he knows his son isn't coming back, or it's an expression, as many of the commentators said, that whatever he's asked to do, he's confident that the covenant son will come back with him. Oh, interesting. Um, so, and, and but, that you know, plays a little bit into that idea of, well, God will provide when, when it yes. asks, you know, what's the sacrifice? God will provide, you know, and, yeah. and uh, many people have thought he's still wrestling through in his mind at that moment. How does this work when I've been promised this son, but I'm killing this son? There's got to be something going on here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the fact is that what he shows is that he's willing to obey, even though he doesn't understand it. He still trusts God. He trusts that somehow all the promises that he's been given about how he'll be the father of a great nation. He's getting a little past his prime you know, by this point. He yeah. doesn't have too many more options. And now you're asked to kill your son, right? Uh, he says, no, somehow this is all going to work out. I just don't know how. Um, so Muslims would say, yes, it's a test. Now, Muslims don't believe in the deity of Christ. That's, that's the fundamental difference sure. between Islam and Christianity. Uh, they're more like Judaism on the, in that score. 
Um, so the, they don't see in in Abraham's near sacrifice of his son a you know a symbolic prefiguring of of God's giving his son as a sacrifice. You know, but from a Christian point of view, we're the ones who are about to pay the price, and then a ram is caught in the thicket, mm, right. sacrificed on our behalf, the Lamb of God. Well, so, so I have a question. So the second part of that that question is: Do they recognize the story of, of the second? We would say Isaac, but you say it could be Ishmael. Okay. So the second part of that is: Then what did they say about the birthright? Do they agree the birthright did not go? Because I'm sure they wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say, "Well, now the birthright went to Isaac." So what do they say about that? No, they tend to regard both of them as prophets, okay. not just patriarchs, but as prophets. And okay. so they each have a different calling. And yes, many of the prophets, and they'll recognize that line, come through Isaac. But a prophet was also, and the, the greatest of all, they would say, the last of them all, the, the chetem and nebiin, the seal of the prophets, is to come through the line of Ishmael. But this is all part of God's plan. So both Ishmael and Isaac have important roles in the divine economy, if you will. Well, I didn't know if they had their own version, like, no, no, the birthright should have really gone to us. And, and I'm, I'm noticing all the parallels that you're talking about. You're talking about um, how they have 12 princes, which is similar to the 12 tribes. And, right. and what was the name of the, the, the spring that you talked about? Zamzam? Yeah, in Mecca, there's a, a spring called Zamzam. But the story told about her, uh, Hagar, running around looking for water and then going some distance off and saying, I, I just can't watch it. My son's going to die. I, I can't watch this. And then the voice of the angel comes and says, don't worry about him. And a spring comes up. This is all told in Islamic sources about Mecca. Right. Well, and you think about, okay, so the Gihon Springs in in uh, in Jerusalem. It's, I mean, all these stories have very similar parallels the 12 this and the spring that and the, you know yeah. the, the stories are similar but told in a different respect so anyway that's that's well, what was, kind of what i was getting at so and of course nice. if, you've, if you've traveled traveled in the middle east at all mm -hmm. or frankly if you've traveled in the american southwest you can understand that water is really really important oh yeah when spring comes up that's really important sure uh, so i have a further question oh sorry uh, further question about that if it's okay and uh, i mean i just want to say you know i've got I spend lots of time in Egypt. I have lots of Muslim friends that are Palestinian and that are Egyptian. And, and so there are some things that, that I talk with uh, them about and some things I understand, but some things I just really don't get. So I'm, I'm going to ask you one of these questions. So you, you've talked about the tradition that the well that uh, Hagar sees is, is there in Mecca um, mm -hmm. where they're saved. Does that then reposition the story of where Abraham is? Uh, for them, or is Abraham still in what we would call the, the Negev area, and uh, Hagar just went a really long ways before yeah. she had this problem? Well, you know, this, when Ishmael uh, is described, he's described as sort of ranging over a pretty big yeah. area uh, yeah. from from not too far away from Besheva, trying to remember the town that's mentioned, but it's uh, from there all the way over in the direction of Assyria, it says. Right. So he's covering vast territories. The idea yeah. is he's a nomad. Oh, yeah. And, and so he gets around. And, you know, I don't know that most nomads really generally traveled such vast distances, but, you know, but he, according to the Muslim view, did. And so, and Abraham did as well. So he moves across the deserts in, in uh, remarkable ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, okay. you know, nomads are very proud of that sort of thing, that they, oh, yeah. they're mobile. I still remember uh, many years ago, my first time in the in the Middle East, 
I found myself for some reason, I don't know why, I was down toward the, well, I was in the Sinai, I think, and I was standing alone. Nobody else was around me, no other students or anything. I was standing by a Bedouin who was sitting on a camel. And uh, yeah, I didn't know what to say. It's uh, <laughs> just the two of us standing there for a fair amount of time. And so I finally said something to him about, you must be uh, really happy to be back under Egyptian rule. because they'd just come back under <laughs> the control. Oh, right. Right. And he said, I am Bedouin. And <laughs> what he meant by that, in effect, was, I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> Egyptian, Israeli, I never paid attention to the Israelis. I don't intend to pay attention to the Egyptians. These national boundaries and nation states are irrelevant to me. I'm yeah. mobile. I move around. Yeah. And I have uh, lots of uh, friends as well who are Bedou or Bedouin, right? That, uh, and that's exactly, even as they become sedentary, they are, and, and more and more of them are, yeah. Um, but they are very, very proud of that heritage and they feel like they are a, a, a people apart. Yeah. Like, the, yeah, you can have your rules and your boundaries and whatever. We just do what we do. Yeah. And, in, and, in and the they do days, look to Ishmael for that uh, heritage has been my impression. They do. In, in the old days. Well, I mean, the way they look at it is they are free in a way that people who are rooted to the land and subject to taxes are not. Yeah. They're slaves. We're free. And we can move around. There's a political story that really sort of illustrates this for me. Um, you know, at one point for three years, 58 to 61, um, Egypt and Syria were one country, the United Arab Republic. And at one point, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the head of Egypt, and therefore the head of the whole thing at that point, came over and visited Damascus. And he was a socialist, heavily influenced by Marxism. And he, he looked around Syria and he said, this place is, it's just wrong. There aren't enough bureaucrats here to, to man a grocery store. And I thought it was really funny that he thought a lack of bureaucrats was a bad thing. You needed a lot of bureaucrats to run a grocery store. But the Syrians in response basically broke up with Egypt because they saw the Egyptians as a nation of slaves under the Pharaoh, always. That, that Pharaoh just happened to be Gamal Abdel Nasser. It had always been a Pharaoh and then the scribes and bureaucrats, and then the, the serfs and peasants. <laughs> but the Syrians, they were Bedouins, yeah. nomads, and you couldn't enslave them that way. Kind of natural-born anarchists, and they yeah, were yeah. about it. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know. Wandering Arameans. Yeah. yeah. We are the real Arabs, they thought. And, uh, and it was true that in, uh, well, for example, in Muhammad's time, the 7th century, um, any family that could afford it would send their son. I don't think they did it with daughters, but they'd send their son out for a year or two among the Bedouin to learn the real Arab ways. Um, sort of like, you know, in Europe at a certain point, sending your, your kid from England to take the grand tour of the continent, you know, pick up a smattering of French and all that sort of thing. For them, send them out to live among the Bedouins because the Bedouins are the real Arabs. We who live in cities are not. I mean, we're sort of Arabs, but they're the real Arabs. In fact, in the Quran, the word Arab only really refers to the Bedouin. <laughs> yeah, they were yeah. the real ones. Yeah. So, and uh, and I have to admit that your uh, your statement about bureaucracy in Egypt maybe is, is still true. I, there's a lot of bureaucracy, but <laughs> <laughs> you you had that experience. Some of us have. I, yeah. It's a big building right on Tahrir Square in Cairo uh, called the Mogama. Mm -hmm. You may have spent some time there. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd like to say I spent a year there one week. 
Um, (laughs) It's a funny story. If you have a minute, you can always cut it out if you don't. But uh, I, when I first went over to Egypt, I applied for a visa um, with the Egyptian consulate in San Francisco and no response, no response at all. And so finally I had to drive from Los Angeles. It was getting time for me to go. I had to drive from LA to San Francisco to get my visa stamped or my passport stamped. And I had a three month visa or so I thought. So I get over there and after about a month and a half, I thought, well, this is probably gonna be a nightmare. I better get the visa renewed. I take it into the Mogama, that big, huge building there on the main square in Cairo. And they said, you're here illegally. This is a one-month visa, not a three-month visa. Oh, no. How am I supposed to know? Well, the one-month visa was triangular. This one's oval. How am I supposed to know that? (laughs) I went in every day for a full week, getting shunted from office to office, until one day uh, the fellow was just telling me, look, you you criminal Westerners, you think you can ignore our laws? You're going to prison. And I thought, I'll just arrest rather than that. (laughs) (laughs) I was lamenting that in in the evening to an Egyptian friend of mine married to the Relief Society president. And he said, I've got tomorrow off. I'll come and help you. And uh, he said, just bring some one pound notes, which are only worth a few cents. And we went from office to office. I'm here confessing this on, <laughs> on a podcast, bribing officials in that building from one room to another. <laughs> we got to the last guy who'd been threatening me with prison the previous day. And he said, oh, he takes a one pound note. He said, oh, let me see your passport. Oh, this wasn't your mistake. This was our mistake. And he immediately ah. gave me the new stamp. And I thought, for, for one Egyptian pound? Wow. But you know, the bureaucracy there is just, uh, it, it is unbelievable. And it's been that way since ancient times. Yeah. Um, there's always been that scribal class. And uh, and they've just grown into it. That's what they expect. But it's not the Bedouin spirit. I mean, Egypt is very different. Yeah. An Arab is not an Arab is not an Arab. They're, they're different from place to place. And, uh, you know, there's some commonalities, but some differences. And, uh, and that's one. There's a wonderful film. Uh, then I'll stop this. But there was a wonderful film that came out years ago called Irhab wa Kabab, Terrorism and Kebab. And it was about a fellow who goes into the Mogama and he gets so frustrated. It's a comedy. Don't worry. He gets so frustrated. He grabs a gun of one of the guards and takes over the building and people throughout the building join in the rebellion. People are outside applauding on the streets. And I thought, I love this movie. (laughs) If I had been there, I would have joined. (laughs) I'm just going to remain silent on this whole uh, (laughs) using uh, pound notes to get things to happen. (laughs) I have nothing to say about that. But uh, but the Arab spirit is is one of uh, you know the Bedouin spirit is one of freedom and and uh, you know if if the if the sheikh of your tribe is oppressive he wakes up the next morning and the tribe has moved and he's <laughs> all alone you know so there's a reason why the sheikh has to yes he kind of guides the tribe but he also has to keep their favor there's a mutual relationship here which isn't true under dictatorships and that sort of thing. So you know, that was one of the interesting things I took away from your, from understanding Islam was how different the mindset is among the people. I mean, I know we get in the West, we get so used to the idea of a, a democracy and we have a voice and there's judges and these people do this and these people do that. Uh, and we don't have an idea of what true tribalism looks like Yeah, and how, 
how that tribal mentality is everything. And it was, a, it was even though, again, I understood that the Ish, who Ishmael was, but it didn't make the connection. So I was listening to your, your, uh, your audio lecture there. And then the same thing with the way that's true. How do the, if for thousands of years you've lived with the tribal idea or your sheikh or your imam or whatever, it, it, that's your go-to guy. He tells you what to think or what to do, or, and they don't have any concept of, of, well, let's get together and talk about ideas and let's let the best ideas come to the top and let's have, you know, Socrates and, and Plato. They don't, they have no concept of any of this kind of stuff. And well, it's it just really hit home. In the Middle East, uh, in the Arab world, certainly, uh, it's personal relationships that count. Mm-hmm. You know, when when a president dies and a vice president takes his place, you know, they have constitutions and all that kind of thing. But it's really a matter of whether the new guy can, can forge those relationships or whether he has those relationships. They're much more about uh, personal status than about contract, much more about relationships than about you know, prescribed patterns and that sort of thing. They do believe in discussion. They'll have uh, often pretty spirited ones. You, in fact, when I first went to the Middle East, I'd see them yelling and the hands just flying <laughs> yeah. and all of a sudden, and I'd, oh my word, they're about to kill each other. And then one of them would slap the other on the back and they'd go off laughing. And so it's a very much a Mediterranean culture with a lot of, you know, like the Italians to the north and so on, a lot of hand motions and that sort of thing. And I suspect it always was, Um, you know, this staid image of the Egyptians that we have from tomb paintings probably didn't reflect daily life of, you know, loud discussions in the marketplace. And Cairo is still wide awake at 2 a.m. Everybody's out on the streets talking because they take siestas during the daytime. It's too hot. Uh, right. But, you know, they love those sorts of discussions and they do believe in what they call shura or councils. Uh, but what you have throughout the Middle East right now are often military dictatorships and so on. That uh, it, if they're not military now, they, they are at root. So can, so can you kind of bridge the gap? As, if I'm, a, I'm sorry, Carrie, do you have something you wanted to add to that? Well, I was going to ask go just a little bit more about the tribalism thing. But uh, yeah, yeah. No, no. So, go ahead. Go to tribalism. But I want to I want to throwing about something about bridging the gap between here and there, but go ahead. Yeah. So, and this is one of the things, and it was actually my interactions with people in Jordan um, uh, that where I, I, as I came to understand their life a little bit better, and there's still a lot of real tribal affiliation and loyalty in Jordan, more so than in Egypt. Egypt hasn't been as much tribal, um, but it was in, in seeing that in modern days that I suddenly connected with some things in the Bible that made sense to me in the Old Testament. So, and I think if we can understand this, it will help us understand um, the the period of, well, a little bit of uh, Jacob's family, but especially the period of the judges and that transition into kingship. And it's a long time before, well, and, and you still can see tribal elements throughout all of their history, but, uh, but it's a long time before it's not like really deeply permeated by tribalism. Uh, but I think that's something that's difficult for us to understand. But someone uh, who, who deals with uh, Ishmael's descendants, as it were, uh, where tribalism is even more rooted, I would say, uh, so, since you're so familiar with that, maybe you could help us understand some of that. I think it will make both that area of the modern world and uh, an aspect of the scriptural world more real for us. Yeah. You know, the fact is we take for granted certain attitudes. Um, 
about you know uh, rights and organization of government and so on and so forth. But it took us a long time to get here. You can go back to Magna Carta in the early Middle Ages. Uh, it was a long evolution in the English-speaking world. Oh yeah, is something like the U.S. Constitution, and even then. We ended into uh, the beginning of our country with the women unable to vote and slaves. I mean, <laughs> it has it has been a long, if you long will, refining process. process. Yeah. So, so we sometimes go into countries that haven't gone through any of that process and are mystified. Well, why haven't they become just you know American style democracies overnight? Because we didn't. You know, right. it, it takes a, a while point. to develop those habits and. Uh, and to, to recognize those things. I mean, I'm, I'm struck by a line from, if I recall correctly, uh, Robert E. Lee, who, when he decided finally, he was offered the commander uh, position of the Union armies, but he finally went with the Confederacy because he said he had to be loyal to his country, by which he meant Virginia. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I mean, it took us a while to even get that notion. <laughs> I've always wanted to do a study. When did we start saying the United States has and the United States is? It used to be the United States are and the right. United States have. And I'm kind of suspecting that happened around the end of the Civil War, something like that. Mm. We finally began thinking of a unitary uh, government rather than you know, a bunch of pretty much independent states where the, the southern states thought, well, we can leave. Um you don't have to stay. Well, we've changed our attitude on that now. But that this whole the idea of overcoming tribalism, it takes a long time to get there. And the Middle East has been, you know, in that tribal position, many parts of it, as you say, Egypt, not so much. Egypt has been a state since, yeah. well, you know, before any other states ever thought of being a state. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you go back to before the pyramids, and you had a state yeah. uh, there in Egypt. And, uh, but that wasn't true in Jordan. Jordan is still fundamentally a kind of Bedouin state in a way. Um, and and I also want to emphasize that, uh, I mean, while we say you're kind of overcoming and progressing, but there are some wonderful, beautiful elements of this kind of uh, family loyalty that is associated with tribalism. So uh, yeah. I, I think that's worth pointing out as well. But. No, it's it's. I don't want to say it's all negative at all, because it isn't. The, the, uh, the hospitality... Yes. Of, of Arab families. Oh, yeah. uh, their loyalty to one another is astonishing. And uh, there's a marvelous uh, section in, in a movie that was done years ago about Hugh Nibley um, called uh, The Faith of an Observer. And I, I think there may be a nice cleaned up version of it online somewhere. I, hmm. I don't remember where. I think it was just put up within the past few months. And at the end, he tells the story of a Jewish midrashic version of Abraham's story of entertaining the angels. And he's he's out there in the desert on a bitterly hot day in the desert, looking for a traveler to whom he can offer hospitality. And he's vowed basically that he won't eat until he can share his meal. And then these three strangers come along who turn out to be the Lord and two angels uh, who then give him the promise of his son. But uh, but that hospitality, that um, that attitude of the Arab sheikh, I see it in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob you know, so yeah. well illustrated. And even today, the greeting that you hear in Arabic, uh, you've heard it if you've traveled around the Arab world at all, they'll say, Ahlan wa sahlan, which is welcome or hello. Well, what it literally means, Ahl is kinfolk mm -hmm. and Sahl is a level place. What it's saying is you've reached family and, and a level yeah. campground. 
This is a Bedouin greeting. I don't think the Arabs even remember, you know, what the context of it is, but it's, you're saying you've been traveling through the desert. Now you're among kin. And even if they're not, and this is a good place to camp, stay with us. So in, in these stories in Genesis, when uh, Abraham goes out and meets the, the strangers, he begs them to come in under his roof. And then when they go to visit Lot, even Lot begs them to come in under his roof and accept his hospitality. Um, this is so Bedouin. Um, yeah. that, uh, and that's still alive as a really important thing today. I've, I've been in homes where they've fed me and fed me and fed me till I couldn't eat anymore. And then they fed me some more and it's, don't you like our food? Yes. Then have another. <laughs> and, uh, that sort of thing. It can sometimes get out of control, but, uh, but it's, it's that Arab heritage that I see in, in the, in the old Testament among the patriarchs. We, we went to a great Israeli, or excuse me, uh, Arab restaurant in Jerusalem, and they have those salads they bring out. And my, my brother-in-law was telling me, oh, they'll bring these salads. I'm thinking some toss green salad. Mm. No, no. It was 14 little dishes of uh, like three different kinds of hummus, and there was like several different kinds of cabbage, and just the 14 different plates of yeah. all that. And of course, yeah. we had a couple people there, so we had 28 plates. And that was before the kebabs came out. And I was like, man, I'm never leaving this place. Just the food and everything and the hospitality was so good. They yeah. were really nice people. Um, I really liked them a lot. And and again, going back to your, your uh, I had just a better understanding. Listen to what you were talking about. I mean, these we talked about, oh, the, the Muslims, they hate us. They hate us. They, really? Do they? Do they really hate you? Or, or is someone telling you that? Or where are you getting that from? You know, where do we get this from? And I want to ask you that in the end about, about yeah. what we're going to do. But I want to piggyback on what Carrie was just saying. I want to talk about how we get from, we have Ishmael and, and uh, Hagar. They're chased out in the desert. Like you said, it's not a happy family moment from Sarah chasing them out. So we have a period of, I don't know, what is that? Like 2,700 years or so where they're in the desert. And so it kind of bridged the gap. What happens after they sort of leave the, the scene? We have times when the Arabs come in and out of the, the Old Testament. But as a student, oh. reading Come Follow Me, we have Hagar, we have Ishmael, and he's not going to be the birthright son. He's chased out. And then we don't hear about a lot of what happens. So can you bridge for us yeah. what happens between that period and then when, when Muhammad comes in the 7th century? Where are these guys going? What happens? And how do they get to where they are? And then we'll talk about, you know, modern stuff. Yeah, they're living out in the desert. Now, I think one way of looking at the biblical account is it's a lineage history. John Sorensen developed that idea with reference to the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a pretty comprehensive history of the Nephites. But if you tried to construct a history of the Lamanites from the Book of Mormon, you couldn't do it. There are too many yeah, gaps. right, right. Uh, they, only, they only figure when they impinge upon the Nephite story. Likewise, the Arabs... Uh, only really figure in the Hebrew Bible when they have some sort of effect upon upon the Israelites, which is relatively rare. The the people of Esau and you know, Ishmael, the 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 uh, the Ishmaelites. I mean, you have it in the story of of uh, of Joseph. And I oh my word, I'm almost slipping into into rhymes and rhythms from uh, Joseph, the amazing Technicolor dreams. <laughs> I think of Ishmaelites and that takes me right into a song. It's going to be a musical podcast. We don't know. Yeah. But you know, they're out there and they're trading and you see them show up in history of, occasionally. Uh, for example, in the story of Paul, 
when Paul goes out and he hides in among the Arabs in Arabia, that's probably the area around Petra, um, which was in the Nabataeans were an Arab group. And so Aretas, who is mentioned in the, in the New Testament, it's just the Arabic name Harith, which is still uh, occasionally heard in the Arab world still today. And there were a whole series of kings named Aretas or Harith in the Arab form there, or Zenobia of Palmyra, um, who takes on the Romans in the third century. Uh, her, that's a Roman form of her name, which is Zainab, which is still a common woman's name in the Arab world today. I, I know several Zainabs who have met them. Uh, so they're still out there, but they're on the fringes. They're usually a little behind or beyond Roman control or, uh, you know, beyond. They, they do trading between the Romans, the sub, uh, successors, the Byzantines and other places. Um, but they're kind of on the edges of history. Mm-hmm. Um they will sometimes show up as mercenary soldiers fighting for the Persian Empire or fighting for the Byzantine Greco-Roman Empire. Um, and then they so, erupt into history with, with Muhammad in the 7th century. Well, do we yeah, Isaiah, think about him? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Kerry. I was just going to say, Isaiah mentions them a few times when he's in his chapters where he's showing that God is going to have uh, dealings with everyone. Yeah. The, the Arabs are included in that. They're part of yes. the everyone that, that the Israelites... Uh, no, and I think your, your point is important. I mean, really, when we're looking at the scriptures, and you get this even from the, early on in the book of Moses, where it says the record is kept of Adam's family, basically, you're looking at family histories. That's The yeah. scriptures are family histories. And right. so we have the, the family history, Isaac's family history. Well, not even all of Isaac's, just Jacob's family history. Um, there's another family history somewhere of Ishmael that I look forward to and hope that we'll get one day. Um, yeah. but, uh, but they are... They're more than just kind of, uh, you know, the peripheral. I mean, in a way they're peripheral, but in a way they're not because the the biblical writers have this keen sense that there is a relation, right? So anyone who's Esau, uh, Moab, the um, descendants of uh, uh, Abraham's wife, Keturah, uh, or of Ishmael, if, if they're a descendant of Abraham, they have a, a special place in, in the view of the Israelites that's different than anyone who's not a descendant of Abraham. Right. They're relatives. They're seen as yeah. relatives. Uh, and that fact, tri- ties into that tribalism thing that you may fight them, but at the same time, they are they are family and you you view them differently and you interact with them differently. Yeah. I mean, in fact, the word Hebrew and the word Arab may actually come from the same root. Ultimately, mm-hmm. there's some debate about the origin of Hebrew, but uh, but it, it that's a possibility. And I mean, they're all over the place if you pay attention uh, if you if you notice, even among the crowd who hear uh, Peter and the apostles speaking in tongues, there were Arabians in that group. I mean, they're always there because, you know, anyone who's been to Jerusalem and on a clear night gone up onto the Mount of Olives and so on, you can see the glow of the city of Amman, the capital of Jordan. You, you can see it reflected on the clouds above it. It's not that far away. Yeah. So the land of the Arabs, which began just across the Jordan River. Uh, was not that far. They were always interacting. I mean, even in the movie Ben Hur, uh, <laughs> pure fiction, of course, but but not impossible that the the guy who has the horses that recruits Ben Hur to, to race them uh, yeah. in, the, in the chariot races in Jerusalem is an Arab. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, the fact is, that's not an unrealistic scenario in a way. Well, th- th- how real is it to me that this fills right into what it says in Genesis 16, where it calls 
um, it calls Ishmael, he will be a wild man. Yeah. Well, he's just that he is. He's uh, we we picture these this 2,700 years as a basically a Bedouin kind of people that move around from place to place. They're, they don't go very far. They're still in that same range, but they are mostly a nomadic people. Yeah. Uh, they live in on the wild. So yeah. they're a wild man. So again, this is I, I kind of picture this like I see this great big picture and it becomes a little more clear. Someone wipes a little more sand away and I'm like, oh, that's that's what it means. A wild man. We're, he's a wild man. All this 2,700 years before what well, that's when Mojave comes around. But before they become big players on the world stage with the Ottoman Empire and so far, they're there's they're around the periphery. They interact with people They come in and out. But they're mostly kind of like a Bedouin a Bedouin society that moves around from place to place. And then later on, they'll start warring and they'll settle in certain areas. But that's kind of what I'm yep. taking away. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's, when it says he's a wild man, I think it doesn't mean he's nuts or you're No, no, exactly. It means he lives in the wilderness. Yeah, um, yeah. he's Grizzly Adams, not like unlike what yeah. you're looking like. <laughs> but, you know, that and they moved around from place to place. That's exactly right. I remember when I first began studying Arabic, the very first dialogue that we learned, the very first text that we studied said, I'll give it to you in Arabic because for some bizarre reason, I can still remember it. It's talking about the Bedouin and it said, uh, They move from place to place searching for water. And you just said they move from place to place. And I immediately thought of that line. Oh, yeah. That is what they do, what they did and what they still do to some extent. I mean, nowadays it's kind of disappointing. I've I've taken students out to visit Bedouin encampments, and when I get close, and I realize that the uh, uh, there's a, a television antenna coming out yeah. of the Bedouin tent, and <laughs> yeah, he comes out, that. he's got a Mercedes, and, and he's wearing a Izon <laughs> shirt. You know, I think, okay, things have changed here a bit, but yeah. uh, but still, uh, that attitude that we're free, and if the government comes after us too much, we'll simply move. You know, that's still there, and moving from place to place. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to, that's the gap I wanted to bridge because we, that's what we get the, from Genesis in 16, 17, and then Hagar is chased out and they live out there. And then, like I said, we have little snippets that we were talking about, Carrie, they come in and out. But what happens to them? And that's what we get. They're out there. They're kind of living on the wild. But then now we focus on uh, Isaac and Jacob and then Israel and then, you know, all yeah. that, all that stuff. But yeah. it's it, I, just to connect it in my mind to make those scriptures real. Where do these people go? That's where they go. And now they're going to re-enter the scene again later on in the seventh century when Muhammad comes about. And that formulates them that unites the tribes. And then they become a, a kind of a force on the world stage. I mean, with the yeah. Ottoman Empire and so forth, they become yeah. traders and, and, and scientists and everything else that happens in the seventh century on. Yeah. So maybe can you hit just kind of what happened? So maybe give us just a little brief on what what uh, what happens to them in in seventh century how they now formulate changes them up a little bit and then we become a world power and then we'll talk a little bit about if, if i can ask that question uh and we'll talk about how they are today and what we what we take away yeah there were some changes that, that occurred in the probably the late sixth century beginning of the seventh century that i think we can sort of detect or read between the lines and see there were caravan traders that were going up and down the coast of arabia uh, and had been for quite some time. I think that uh, that Lehi follows one of those trails uh, pretty right. much along the way. And then he deviates at the end to avoid uh, Yemen because he's afraid that 
He might end up leaving Lamb and Lamb Lair. They might just stay in the flesh pots stay. of Yemen, which, by the way, from my distance, not being their father, I think, would that have been so bad? <laughs> Yemen and just carry on. But, um, but he avoids Yemen, goes around behind it to uh, the area where he builds the boat and, and sails for the New World, uh, following, uh, I think, pretty much the, the old frankincense trail. But somewhere in, the, oh, about three generations before Muhammad, maybe less, um, someone in Arabia got the idea, you know, for years we have been uh, making money by serving as guides or, or <laughs> frankly, charging protection money. It's kind of a racket, you know. Your, your heavily laden caravan is out here in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Sure would be a pity if something were to happen yeah. to it. So, uh, <laughs> you know, if you pay us a certain amount, we can make sure that nothing does. Um, but also, you know, people couldn't maneuver. We talk about the trail. It wasn't a trail like the John Muir Trail or the Appalachian Trail. It was a broad area, sometimes 20, 30 miles wide, and you had to know where the watering holes were. And if you didn't, you died. Um, and so you needed local knowledge. And these people would rent themselves out. Well, somebody finally says, you know what? Um, we could just do this. I mean, they can't function without us. Why don't we've been watching this for generations? Why don't we take over the caravan trade for ourselves, eliminate the, the other guys and just do it ourselves? So by the time Muhammad comes along, he is, most accounts say that he served as a caravan merchant in his early life and had that experience, visited Syria and so on. But what this means is that some ideas are entering into the Arab world. They have... Uh, they have apostatized from whatever uh, Ishmael knew, and, and they still believe in a God by the name of Allah. They call him Allah, Allah, A-L-L-A-H, which is, by the way, related to the word Elohim, um, same root. Mm -hmm. uh, but they believe in this God, but they've, you know, some other things have, have you know, like, uh, like, uh, things that fasten onto a boat's hull, you know, um, it's picked up some, some baggage. Uh, and so, uh, something needs to happen to purify their religion, but they have a lot of the basic ideas. They believe there is a supreme God named Allah. They just think he has some daughters and there are some other things. They have some idols in the area. But ideas begin to come in from the outside about Christianity and Zoroastrianism, which was another advanced sort of monotheistic religion in Persia. And Judaism, there are some Jews now in Arabia probably fleeing the destruction of Jerusalem, either the first temple or the second temple, or both. Um, and they brought some ideas in, and some sensitive souls are saying, well, that's a better religion than this pagan thing that we have, which makes no moral demands. We're getting rich, but it doesn't tell us how to spend our money. If you're really, really rich, go ahead and exploit the poor. Don't care for the widows and the orphans, the, the gods, the jinn, the genies, they don't care. Uh, but there are religions out there with a moral code, and we wish we had something like that. So there's an expectation, I think, about Muhammad's time. There's a kind of movement that are called the Hunafat or singular Hanif uh, movement. who are looking for a better religion. They're, they're wondering why, why the Arabs don't have a revelation. Muhammad so what what does Hanif mean? Hanif, it, it, Abraham has designed, or excuse me, described as a Hanif, a person who is not Jewish, not Muslim, not Christian, because Abraham's earlier than all of those divisions. It's right. sort of, I call it a generic monotheist. Okay. That's okay. how I would define it, I think. Is, um, the, is the modern name Hanafi uh, related to that at all? Or is it's, that it's related to the root, yeah. It's okay. the name of a legal school 
Yeah, from a man by the name of Abu Hanifa, but it is from the same root. But they, um, they're looking for something better, sort of like the attitude I think you see in, in, uh, in well, the American Northeast. Wilfred Woodruff offers the clearest example. There's a guy that he grew up with, Robert Wood, I think was his name. I can't remember his last name. I think it was Wood. And I should have looked it up, but I didn't know I was going to be thinking about it. So <laughs> we don't know where it's going to go. So <laughs> he refers to him as a prophet because uh, this Robert Wood was older than he was and said, you know, he was looking for the true religion. It's not on the earth. But he said, Wilfred, it will be someday and you're going to play a role in it. Wilfred Woodruff always refers to him as a prophet after that. And he died before the church was established or right after he didn't have a chance to join. And I get the sense that there was something like that in Arabia, people looking for something better. Muhammad is one of them. And so Muhammad is out uh, on a hillside above Mecca uh, near a cave on, on Mount Hira, and he's, uh, he's meditating. Actually, we don't know what he's doing. I think I have mentioned this elsewhere, that he's practicing Tahanath, which is really mystifying because as far as I know, that word occurs only once in all of Arabic writing. So your guess is as good as mine, what it means, we can't tell. He's up in the mountain doing Tehanath, great. Um, uh, I would guess prayer and meditation or something like that, that fits the context. And, uh, and that's when the revelation of the Quran begins. The angel Gabriel, according to traditional accounts, appears to him and begins revealing the surahs or chapters of the Quran, which extends over 22 years. Now, there is actually an alternate version of that prophetic call, which I really like. From a Latter-day Saint point of view, it's very attractive. Um, yeah, from a later Muslim view, not so much. They kind of, they're too honest to suppress it, but they put it sort of in the footnotes and are mystified by it. According to that version, he's up uh, in the year 610 at the cave of Herat, and he's been meditating or whatever he's doing. And he comes out, nothing has happened. He comes out, and he's walking along the brow of the hill. And then he says, I saw him seated upon his throne. And this is clearly not Gabriel. Gabriel is never associated with a throne that God is. And it, he seems to be having a vision, according to those accounts, of an anthropomorphic, corporeal, embodied, human-formed God seated mm -hmm. upon a throne who calls him to be a prophet. It's a throne theophany vision. Uh, Lehi had one very similar to it. And, uh, and I'm thinking, looking at that, I wonder if he really did. And this has been yeah. suppressed later on. Uh, you know, you can see marks of it being suppressed in the in the documents. They'll say, uh, "Well, I was walking along, and uh, and it says in Arabic, uh, I saw him, but it doesn't identify him." And I think, "Come on, tell us the full story." Or the one I really like is, "I looked up shay'an. I looked up and I saw a thing, or I saw something." Like now, nobody tells a story like that. Nobody says, "Well, thing. I was walking along." And, and I looked out the window, and I saw something. And then move on, don't elaborate on what you saw. So somebody's tinkered with the text at that point, I think, because later Islam doesn't like the idea of an anthropomorphic deity in the form of a human being. But I think that's what Muhammad thought he saw. Uh, and, uh, and so that begins his prophetic career from 610 until his death in 632. Um, but the pivotal moment, and Muslims reckon their calendar from this, is the year uh, 622, a little past midway in that 22-year period, where he has to flee his hometown because of persecution, the persecution of his followers, and he leads them to Medina, 
Well, the town is called Yathrib then. After, afterwards, it's called El Medina, the city, or Medina Nebi, the city of the prophet. And, uh, and that then uh, becomes the headquarters. And there he takes on a political role. And everything about the Islamic empire flows from that, that they need him in Medina because they're having strife. They say, look, you're being persecuted in your hometown. Come to our town. You're not related to anybody here, but you have a rep a reputation for integrity, you can be the arbiter of disputes. He's okay. As long as I, my followers can come with me. Oh yeah. And as long as you recognize me as the prophet of God, they say, oh yeah, they're pagans. They don't know what that means. Uh, sure. No problem. What's well, a fateful decision because then he becomes head of both, if you will, church and state, uh, the judge, you know, the supreme ruler. And that's the birth of the Islamic state, which flows from that. And eventually filled up much of the Mediterranean basin and all the way over into Northern India and, and so on. Yeah. A billion followers, right? One of the yeah. biggest religion on earth yeah. right now, as far as organized religions, the biggest, yeah. the biggest one. Yeah, it is. Well, oh, well I appreciate that. That's, see, that's yeah. all that's fascinating in trying to lay this out to, he has beginnings all the way back in the Bible to today. And why are we fighting against ourselves? I mean, you know, yeah. all these thousands of years later, why are we still fighting? Well, you know, uh, civil wars can be some of the worst. Conflicts yeah. within families can be some of the most bitter. And I guess that's it. I mean, the, I, I will tell you, sometimes when I'm driving through the streets of Jerusalem, when I see people walking along, unless they're dressed in peculiar garb, wearing a kippah or, you know, something like that, mm -hmm. I can't tell whether they're Arabs or Israelis. Now, some Israelis are very fair-skinned, obviously, they're Europeans, yeah. but, but many are not. And uh, there was a hotel in particular that we stayed in once years ago with a group of people, and, and it was jointly operated in Nazareth by Palestinians and Israelis. Mm -hmm. And I would walk up to the desk, I remember the first night, I thought it was a Palestinian, and I said, Salam, and uh, he said, Shalom. Oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Next time I walk up and there's a girl behind the counter and I said, shalom to her. And she said, salam. I said, okay, from now on, it's hello. You know? <laughs> because I cannot tell. And I've been around this area a long time. And I'm told by some that if you do DNA testing on at least large percentages of the Arabs and the Israelis, they're very hard to tell apart, even genetically. Oh, yeah. Uh, when you're in Jerusalem itself, in the old city, right there in the walls, it's hard to tell what shopkeepers are doing with. There's a few telltale signs that you can tell, yeah. but a lot of times you can't tell who's who's who, and you're just buying some spice from this one or that one, you know, yeah. so hard to tell. So, you know, that's the irony of it. The really sad thing about the dispute is they're so like each other. And, and of all the Arab societies, I'd say in some ways, the Palestinians are the most like the Israelis, you know, mm. uh, is, People have, you know, there have been conspiracy theories about it, but, you know, the sort of Jewish merchants all over the place, really successful. And with a network of international people, the Jewish diamond merchants in Antwerp and Tel Aviv and New York and, and so on. Um, they're all cousins and that kind of thing. Well, now you're starting to see Palestinian networks exactly like that, because you want to know another really good Levantine mercantile people, the Palestinians, they're really good at it. And have been forever. And, uh, and so it's just in so many ways, the, uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians are so similar that it's, it's sad to see the dispute. Well, I don't, uh, that's, yeah, exactly. And this is kind of where I want to 
my last question, because I, I know we don't want to take your entire day. And Carrie, if you need to jump in here, please, you know, what I want to do now is at the end of your, your understanding Islam and LDS perspective, when I got to the end of that, I was like, how do I reach out to my Muslim brothers now? Are you, I don't know any in our neighborhood. I mean, there's some in our neighborhood, but what do we take away now? What's, what kind of attitudes because if you listen to the media, it's like, well, they're all there. Well, they don't say they're all terrorists, but, you know, they're terrorists and they want to they hate you and they hate. I, I really refer everybody back to listening to your understanding of Islam. It'll give you the idea of of what they like. I, in fact, I will just say this one little thing. I think that you mentioned it. I think this was your analogy that you said they sort of see the West as like the Las Vegas, like an LDS person would, would see Las Vegas. Was that you that said that? I may have said something like that. That's if it wasn't you, it was, I, I've had this, but it's like. You know, the LDS person goes to Las Vegas and we, and we want to go to the buffet and we want to see the shows, but we don't want to participate in all of it. So, there's, right. you know, so there's there's some parts that are, are repulsive about it. And there's some parts that are so still attractive. You know, it's like we're wearing yeah. the eyes on shirts and we're having the Mercedes. But yeah. OK, so in, in that way, I I, I want to uh, they don't hate us like just individually, like I hate you because of this. There's reasons why they don't like Western culture and there's reasons why they're trying to establish certain things, but what do we take about from this that we can build some common ground on? I'm going to have a podcast called common ground, but how do we build common ground with our people and the way we formulate our ideas, our policies, our, our legislatures, how do we work with Islam? How do we work with our brothers? Yeah, I, I will say that I can't count the number of conversations that I've been in where it begins with a denunciation of American foreign policy or American attitudes toward Israel. And then after that's passed, we're just friends because yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's my government they're mad at, not me. Yeah. They're fine with me uh, and with Americans in many cases. Um, and that's just really, really common. I've, I've had that experience really innumerable times. So there are bases on which we can build relationships. I think one is, well, hospitality. I've had people call me uh, many times, not recently, but but many times when they, they've wanted to know, oh, if there's a mosque being built in my neighborhood here in California or wherever they are, uh, should I be concerned? And my immediate response is, yes, you should be concerned that if they have a, an open house, you might miss the invitation because <laughs> uh, they'll probably have some really good food. And oh, yeah, they will. A lot of really good neighbors. So uh, and unless the imam is some fire-breathing loon, which is relatively rare, um, you're just going to find it's a real addition to the neighborhood. There'll be a community center there and a lot of people that you will like. And, and, and they're frankly sort of like Latter-day Saints in this regard. They want you to come because they'd love you to become Muslims. Yeah. We love them to come to open houses. <laughs> we, we want people to sure. become Latter-day Saints. Why not? That's fine. I understand that. And, uh, but they'll be, they'll be wonderful, friendly people. And we can often make common cause with them. This is one important thing, I think. Uh, we can make common cause with them on certain community issues, uh, certain standards that we share in common, certain uh, social trends that we share a common distaste for. Um, you know, where, where the society is going downhill in certain ways. You know, when when uh, when some artworks began coming out that were really blasphemous, you know, uh, toward Jesus or really blasphemous from a Catholic point of view toward the Virgin Mary, um, often the people that were leading the demonstrations and the protests were Muslims who were mm. at least as offended as the Catholics and the general Christians were by those things. They were out picketing and so on. I mean... We are not opposed on everything. 
They, they venerate Jesus. They venerate Moses. They actually have a whole chapter in the Quran about Mary. Uh, and so Samuel's one of their favorite prophets. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot in common with them and, and we have a lot of, of values, shared values. And I think there are a lot of areas where we could work together. I know the church is working together with Islamic relief to bring uh, aid where, where necessary. In a lot of areas of the world where there have been, you know, earthquakes or the tsunami, for example, in Indonesia, um, you know, in the, in the Indian Ocean Basin, when was it? Quite a few years ago. I'm getting old. These things seem like they were recent, but they're a long time ago, <laughs> relatively speaking. But, but uh, the church entered in there, and we didn't have the distribution network that Islamic Relief had in Indonesia, but we had things they didn't have, and so we worked together. And uh, there are wonderful stories that have come out of this, of Latter-day Saints and Muslims working together, or, or Latter-day Saints uh, offering the welfare canneries to help Muslims make food, oh, yeah, fantastic. food for Bosnia and so on. And, uh, or in one case, I know in, I think, Orange County, California, when the Muslim mosque was under construction, we allowed Muslims to hold their Friday prayers in the cultural hall of one of the stake centers there. Oh, and they appreciate that kind of thing. And they appreciated having a worship space that gave them a flat area to pray without icons and crucifixes and all that sort of thing. Um, so there are a lot of areas where we can work together on humanitarian projects and so on. Um, where I just think uh, we have a lot in common and, and a real desire to serve. I remember one area in Florida where the, the the imam there was was wanting to know what we could do together with with what he could do with Latter Day Saints. He said, "I've got a in that particular mosque. He had I think eighty seven Pakistani doctors working in that area of Florida who came to his mosque." And he said, "But we're all first generation and we don't know things to do." And I said, "Well, we do, you know." And so the ideal would be for us to get together and help to organize projects where they could supply that kind of manpower. Um, and, and there was an effort to go ahead with that. I don't know what came of it. The local state president was enthused. And then about a month later, it was called as the temple president. So I don't know if anything followed through on or not. But I think that kind of thing is really promising. And I would just say, if you have Muslim neighbors, invite them over. You know, uh, if they invite you, go. Um, we can, they are... We're not doing missionary work in most areas of the Islamic world, and we're being very, very careful about that. If it's against the law, we don't do it. Latter-day Saints, right. as some leaders of the church have said, we don't go, we don't enter a country except through the front door. We don't sneak in. But, you know, we can, we can be friendly with them. I, here's an example. That very area in Florida, I spoke, um, I spoke to a group of Latter-day Saints in the stake center across from the temple in, uh, in Orlando to, um, to Latter-day Saints there on Islam. Well, at the last minute, uh, the imam of the big mosque, and it's a big mosque there down the street from the temple, uh, decided that he wanted to attend. And he announced to his mosque people, his parishioners, if you will, he said, I'm not going to be here for the Quran class next Sunday night. I'm going to the Latter-day Saint Chapel, the Mormon Chapel, across the street from their temple. And I'm going to attend their, their uh, uh, talk there. And if any of you want to come, please do. Oh, that's but cool. when he arrived, it was just minutes before the thing started. And probably about 15 or 20 members of his mosque came in. Some of the Latter-day Saints, I found out later, were very nervous about this. 
but I loved it. Um, I had him come up on the stand with me. And when the question and answer session started, there were some of the questions where I said, well, the imam here can answer that question at least as well as I can. And so what came out of that was uh, a lot of people then talked with them and they were friendly. And then, um, oh, about six months later, he called me up and wanted to know, he says, we do an annual uh, uh, program for the Muslims of Central Florida on Muhammad. And I wanted to know if you would be willing to be the keynote speaker. And I thought, this is astonishing. But yes, yes, I would. Um, and so he told me later that some members of his mosque were really worried about me. About you, yeah. Yeah. And he said, don't worry. When he's done, we can talk about it. Well, I tried to make sure that I didn't do anything that would offend them. And I, again, tried to emphasize we have so much in common. Yeah. And there are areas where we can work together. And um so I think on a practical level, I'd say even before I preach to a Muslim, mm -hmm. I try to make a Muslim friend. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's uh, that 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 applies almost every time. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to preach to somebody if they're not disposed to want to listen to what you have to say. If they don't respect for you. Right. Then why are you preaching to them? So you you need to have an accept. Uh, that's you know, that's when they went to the missionary manual back when I was, you know, a missionary. It's build relationships of trust. Well, that's the first thing you do. Yeah, yeah. No relationship trust with these people. So I would, I'd like to see it happen. It's happening to an extent on the church-wide level. I know some of the brethren have been into Muslim countries and have built good relationships there and so on. But I'd love to see Latter-day Saints doing it in local congregations across the church where it's possible to do that. Reach out, you know, uh, oh. have a joint service project with the local mosque. Oh, I'd be all for that. I'd, be, I, I'd love to even find just a nice... A uh, restaurant that's good, here, that's decent here in Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, I'd be all for that kind of stuff. Terry, go ahead. Yeah, maybe I can just add to that. Some of the, you know, I have lots and lots of Muslim friends, and and some of the areas that I found are are very much common ground uh, conversation points that you can just talk about. Uh, if you want to talk about how to treat other people, uh, you will find that we agree with our Muslim brothers, and you can go on for hours and hours about the right way to treat people and just agree, 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 agree. If you want to talk about, there might be different forms, but about the importance of being devoted to God, yeah. uh, you will find that you can talk about that for hours. If you want to talk about being honest or, or helping people that hospitality or being honest and so on, and, and maybe I'll just uh, uh, share a story real quickly. Um, because I want our, our listeners to understand the, the goodness that, uh, yeah, I mean, in every religion, there's someone who practices it in a way that most people in the religion don't, don't think is the right way. And then every religion, there are people who kind of believe, but their behavior doesn't match their beliefs. That's true of anyone. But by the vast, vast, vast majority, Muslims live their religion in a very, very wonderful, honorable way. So I'll, I'll just share a story that highlights that. Um, for very many years, we had a, a driver named Hanafi. We've actually had two drivers for our excavation named Hanafi, but uh, this was a dear, dear old man. And um, one year, one of our um, uh, the people from my excavation team, as he drove us to the airport, she had an envelope with $500 in it. And uh, she accidentally left it in the taxi. Uh, it just fell out of her pocket or her bag or something, and she left it in the taxi. Now, during that year, poor, and this, this, uh, this story is actually a little emotional for me. It's hard for me to tell, but poor uh, Mr. Hanafi, wonderful man, had a daughter um, who died during that year. Mm -hmm. And it was partially because they couldn't afford to get her the medical treatment that could save her. Um, but when we came back the next year, he gave that 
envelope with $500 in it that had been sitting in his house for a year waiting mm-hmm. to give back mm-hmm. to uh, our execution member, who, if she had known, would have said, please use that for your daughter. But, uh, but he was not going to use it for his daughter because it wasn't honest. Uh, right. And that's the kind of, of people that we're talking about. And, and I, I, I don't think he's exceptional in that way. We're just talking about good people who devoutedly want to live the way God wants them to live. Yeah. No, I think that's true. People used to ask me all the time, well, don't you feel unsafe in Cairo? And the answer was no. No, I never have. I mean, I grew up near Los Angeles. There are areas yeah. of Los Angeles that I would never go. Uh, but in Cairo, I could go just about anywhere and feel perfectly yeah. safe. Uh, and Agreed. I heard lots of stories of people leaving something somewhere and it was still there when they came back. People yeah. hadn't stolen it. You know, um, there's there's a lot of honor there. You know, they're, they're the occasional thieves and pickpockets. But but by and large, no, I have never felt unsafe there. Um, and uh, because the people are basically good people, they'll go out of their way to help you. Yeah, they will. Uh, this is fantastic. This is kind of what I was hoping we would come to. Is this kind of, and I could go on for hours more. I won't take up your time, but I hope you'll come back and visit us again on the podcast because I've got 10,000 more questions for you for sure. And I could listen to your stories and, and things all, mm-hmm. all day long. But I had a, a conversation when I was in, when I was at BYU, one of my uh, friends, also a return missionary, uh, she was just determined to get into politics and, and she was going to change all the laws. And I said, well, what laws are you going to pass to make people be good? And she's like, well, what do you, what do you think we should do? And I'm like, I'll tell you what I think we should do, but you're not going to like it because it's not a simple answer. And she said, well, what do you think? And I thought you should encourage people to go to church, to go to temple, to go to synagogue, to go to mosque, anything of those religions that teach good things and relationships with your fellow people. Same thing after 9-11. I thought the same thing. Go out and meet your neighbors. That's the first thing you do. Don't go pass a law. Don't go look for this protest. Go meet your neighbor first, yeah. and then let's let's meet our our, our world neighbors, um, which are these these great Muslims that are out there that that have very similar things to us. They have similar backgrounds, and they're not that far different from us. Like Carrie said, they have great principles of honesty. Billions, a billion people out there. There's a few bad apples. There's a few bad apples everywhere. We've talked about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you so another common that. point uh, yeah. is family. Oh, I yeah, find for sure. that I have more in common with Muslims when it comes to talking about family than I do with most Americans. Right. That's and true. I'm more comfortable with my large family. I have six kids, right? Which is a while ago wouldn't have been seen as a large family and now is. Um, but in, in, uh, if, when I lived in Los Angeles, so I, Dan and I are both fellow Bruins. Um, but uh, when I lived in Los Angeles and people would see that we had a large family, it, it was inevitable that we would receive derogatory comments. Yeah. But if I'm around Muslims and I have, they see I have six children, they say mabruk, which means blessed. You're blessed, yeah. right? Yeah. They, uh, I, really, I am more at home in terms of family discussions with Muslims than with uh, Americans. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. There's a, a, a YouTube channel out there called Surge and Rhoda, Surge and Rhoda in Israel. And mm. you should look this up. And Surge is an Israeli and Rhoda his wife is Arab and they go all around the Holy land going through the Bible stories and then visit these places. And they, they're like, this is where Goliath could have stood. And listen, you can hear me speak from here. The fantastic YouTube. Um, you should look at surgeon Rhoda in Israel. Okay. And, but especially during this last year when they or two years, when they couldn't go out, um, 
Rhoda went to some of her, her family things and talked about families and whatever. So she, again, she's Arab, right? So she talked about some of the food they had and they couldn't go out and visit the places that they wanted to go. They're quite locked down, but they talked about food and, and about the people and about their, you know, their father and all these great family things. And so, yeah, that's perfect. And I, kind of want to end on this unless Carrie, you've got anything else you want to throw no. in here, please. I'd like to end on, on this sort of, uh, tell me again, I thought I'm going to learn this phrase, the phrase that you gave us for what you're among family on flat ground. Tell me yeah. that again. It's Ahlan Wasahlan. So A H L A N W A W A and then Sahlan S A H L A N. So it rhymes a little bit. Ahlan wasahlan. And ahl means kinfolk, family, something like that. And sahlan means level, flat. So what it was is and. Hmm? The wa part is and, right? Was so, and, yeah. yeah. So family and flat is <laughs> sort of family and level, which the only way I can understand that is to think it's a fossilized greeting which says, mm-hmm. you have arrived among kinfolk. It's a good campground, like Abraham and Lot begging the strangers, stay with us, you know, partake of our hospitality. I, I, as soon as you said that, that was like a perfect metaphor for what we're talking about here is family. And we're family. That's what Carrie and I were talking about. This is the family. The, the, the story, the stories in the Old Testament are about our family. This is how our family started. So you're a family and we're on, uh, we're on even ground, which I can think of so many great metaphors for the level ground. Of course, when you're camping, you want a level camping ground. You don't want to be sloped or uncomfortable. So it's a comfortable place. Right. It's a level ground, but it's also metaphorically, you think about this is a nice common ground, even ground. We're on even levels. I'm yeah. not sitting on a throne. I'm not on a pedestal. We're on even level ground. The, the, in, I was in Louisiana and the, the, um, uh, in, in New Orleans, they have places that they're like medians and they call them neutral grounds. They're like little park areas. And they would say, well, meet in the meet in the neutral ground. And it's just a level, easy place. And I thought, man, that, what a great metaphor that you had there yeah. Um, yeah. about the level ground. I can think of so many great ways. And I think that's a perfect metaphor for what we should be doing. And I really appreciate your knowledge and bringing this to us here uh, on the podcast. Carrie, what do you think? Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, this has been um, one of the singular fun times of my life uh, <laughs> as far as studying scriptures. I've been wanting to do it since... This 2002, I got a copy of this from my friend, Rich, uh, who worked at Deseret Book. So if you haven't heard this, and, and Dr. Peterson, Dan, are, are you going to do another version of this, this Understanding Islam? Well, uh, you're encouraging me to do it, so maybe I will. <laughs> okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to extract a commitment out of you that you're going to do a version. This one is still, <laughs> it, it's still as timeless as ever, I'm sure. And if, if you're not looking, I keep holding this up. And if you're not watching, if you're just listening, it's called Understanding Islam, an LDS Perspective by Daniel C. Peterson. And it's a two CD set. Uh, is it still at Deseret Book? It's on Deseret Book Plus. I know. I have it. Okay. Honestly, uh, I, well, I listened to it last week on Deseret Book Plus. If it's if it's uh, if it's not there, we need to get it back on there because it really is is fantastic about understanding this. And I really wish you would do also a non-LDS one, not because I think the LDS one LDS one has is the plus of a version, but I think we did a non-LDS one so that other people would just understand a little bit about Islam and that it's not so foreign and we don't have to be enemies with these people. These are, right. these are our brothers. Yeah, that would be, I think if I had to boil it down one sentence, what I've tried to convey to Latter-day Saints and others over the years is we are not that foreign. 
these no. religions are not that different. There are differences, but sure. it's not it's not even like uh, Christianity and Buddhism, which are really very very different. But Christianity, Judaism, and uh, and Islam are are cousin religions. They're what what the uh, what the Arabs called the uh, Adyana Semawiya, the heavenly religions, or uh, Adyan Ibrahimiya, the Abrahamic religions. So right, yeah, we come from the same place, and that's what we're studying here this year in Come Follow Me, the Old Testament, and this is our family. So anyway, yeah. anyway, I, talking about cousin Ishmael and his buds. <laughs> That's right. right. Cousin Ishmael. Cousin Ishmael. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adopt that too. Uh, so anyway, that's been fantastic. And I've waited. I, I would have never thought I years ago, I wanted to, to get a hold of you and, and ask you a few questions. And I'm like, I don't know, I'm never gonna have an audience for this, uh, you know, to, to call up this guy out of the middle of nowhere. And just luckily knowing Carrie and, and the thing. So anyway, it's been a, a singular pleasure for me to be able to talk to you. And I hope that we get to talk again on some other things. Like I've yeah. got so much thing, so many things that I want to hear about. But, uh, but for now, uh, we'll let you get on with your day and you've got a book to put out. I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, thank you. You bet. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Carrie. Um, thanks for introducing us and letting us talk. Um, uh, and uh, I've just really appreciated the discussion here. I hope we get to do it again. And thanks again for our listeners and, and viewers for joining us on the Scriptures Are Real podcast. I hope you share this with your friends. I hope you get something out of it and that you can get a better understanding of how the Scriptures are real and they are real in your life. Thanks a lot. <laughs>